Let's stand together, please. We're going to be looking in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2 at a message I call, you guessed it, unfinished, unfinished. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, now are we the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. May God bless the reading of His Word today. It's my prayer. You may be seated. Well, long before we had that great song unfinished, we had the little children's song that declared, He's still working on me to make me what I ought to be. Took Him just a week to make the moon and the stars, sun and the earth and Jupiter and Mars. How loving and patient He must be. He's still working on me. I had to sing just a little bit. Sorry. Uh, Today's message is going to develop that thought that God is indeed still working on us. And we see in this passage in our text today a couple of things that are revealed to us. uh, Number one, that we're not a finished product yet. Uh, It doth not yet appear what we shall be. We're not a finished product yet. And uh, the other thing we're going to develop today is that the outcome is not in question. We're not a finished product That's number one. Number two, uh, the outcome is not in question. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. We understand that in life a lot of projects don't get finished in spite of the fact that they're well-meaning, well-intentioned. In fact, some people start a project and they don't complete it because they actually die before it's done. I saw that play out in Branson when we moved up there many years ago to start a new church. and uh, They were building a huge steakhouse. I mean, four stories tall. I thought, that thing, I, I, I just couldn't imagine such a huge uh, building for a restaurant. Uh, But this man had a vision, had a dream. He started it out. He got the project about half done, and he passed away. He died. And uh, it was many years, the building project just sat there empty for a long, long time. I mean, unfinished. And finally, uh, they were able to come back in and finish the restaurant, get it open, but it didn't stay open very long. There was just nobody, once he passed, who was able to see that vision and then carry it through. It just seemed like that the dream of what that was going to be Uh, passed with him. Uh, Some projects are started, but people don't live uh, to see them through. Uh, That's why that uh, Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25 is so important to us, because it says that he, that's Jesus Christ, is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. How can we be saved to the uttermost? Because Jesus has died, He conquered death, and He is alive forevermore. He finishes what He starts, and death is not going to cut His work short. That's that's not going to happen. He ever lives, and as long as He's alive, then we can claim that promise that He is faithful to complete that work that He has started. That's why we can say this morning, Uh, That number one, he's still working on us. That's true. Number two, the outcome is not in question. Now this text this morning in 1 John is a part of an extended discussion that uh, John the Apostle wrote. And he wrote with a stated purpose. And that purpose is found in John chapter 5 and verse 11. And this is the record that God hath given us eternal life. 
and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son hath not life. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. I've written these things so that you may know that you have eternal life. You ask people, well, are you saved? Are you going to heaven? And a lot of people say, I hope so. Listen, God doesn't want you to have a hope so salvation. whole book in the Bible was inspired so that you wouldn't have a hope so, but a no so. If there's one thing you need to be certain of, it is of your eternal destiny in Jesus Christ. I can be uncertain of a lot of things. I never have figured out electricity, but I'm not going to sit around in the dark till I do. I can be uncertain about a lot of things, but I don't want you to be uncertain about your eternal destiny. I'm not uncertain. I know John tells us how we can know, that we can know. If you're one of those folks, you say, well, I just don't know. Well, this message might just be for you because God says you can know. He wants us to know for sure that we have eternal life. And he does so then that we might believe on the name of the Son of God. Well, he said, now wait a minute, I don't understand why if John was writing to believers. Why was he telling them they needed to believe? Well, I'm glad you asked because uh, there was a, a heresy that was developing, a lot of in fact, in the first century. And part of what John was doing was writing uh, to write against what these people were saying. And what they had done is taken that simple message of believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved and begun to add in a lot of other rituals, a lot of more rigmarole that people had to go through. Rigmarole is a good South Arkansas word. You won't find it in a dictionary, but it is, and it's an Alabama word too. They added in a whole bunch of other stuff. Uh, that you had to do in order to placate this feeling and that power and this entity and this thing. And, and so Paul was right, or the Apostle John then was writing so that they might know that they have eternal life. And the way they'd know that and had the certainty is because they had believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and he wanted their faith to remain solid. They didn't want to be pulled away from that and had their faith shaken not knowing for sure, not knowing for certain that everything was all right. So he's telling them, uh, Jesus is trustworthy. You've believed on him because he's trustworthy. He still is. After all these many centuries, I want to add my amen to that this morning. Jesus is still trustworthy. You trusted him when he saved you? You can trust him today. He's still trustworthy. He is the means of our salvation. That leads then immediately to another question because he puts it so simply in this passage, he that hath the Son hath life. Uh, That makes us ask the question, do you have Jesus? But then there's also the second question. Does Jesus have you? Do you have Jesus? Does Jesus have you? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. What? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and you're not your own? For you are bought with the price. You are bought with the price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. You are bought with the price. I want you to imagine something with me. Imagine that you go down to the uh, car lot somewhere, someplace, you buy a brand spanking new car. <clears throat> and though you bought that car, you've paid for it. 
You pay the insurance on it. You pay all of the maintenance, all the driving, put all the gas in it. But you never get to drive it. Imagine that. If you've ever raised a teenager, maybe you don't have to imagine that. <laughs> maybe you didn't buy them a brand new car. I bought all of mine the oldest clunker I could find because that was a good plan, by the way. Uh, I'd do it again if I had the chance to do it. But uh, buy a car. You never drive. But now, uh, let, let's add a, a little wrinkle to that concept. Let's imagine that you buy this brand spanking new car, but then you got a neighbor down the road. He hates you. He's always talking bad about you. He's doing, he just wants to destroy you. You buy this car, and this neighbor comes by, and he takes your car. Every time he goes to the gas station, he fills it up. He charges it to your account. You pay the insurance on it. If a tire goes out, first thing you know, you get a bill from the tire company. Man, you need to come down and pay for these tires on this car. Let me ask you something. Are you going to let that go on? No. You're going to be satisfied with that arrangement? You bought a car, you're paying for it, you're putting all the gas in it, doing all the maintenance, but you, somebody else has got it. Are you satisfied with that arrangement? Of course not. Of course not. Do we think God is satisfied with that arrangement? Do you have Jesus? Does Jesus have you? Does he have me? That's a big question, and that's really where we're going to be going today. In Romans chapter 6, we find this, this passage, verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it. In its lusts, and do not present your members, yourself, your body, as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under law, but under grace. See, when God saved us, He redeemed us, He bought us, He paid for us. We're His. We belong to Him. And He then tells us, don't let somebody else take possession. Don't let sin take possession of what God has bought and paid for. Instead, you present yourself to God. Later on in that chapter, we'll see it later on in the message. He calls on us to present ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is our reasonable service. Do you have Jesus? Does Jesus have you? Well, there's a passage of Scripture we're going to look at this morning that provides a great framework for discussing how we reconcile the tension between those two things. Do you have Jesus? Does Jesus have you? And I think all of us this morning, we tell about how quiet things got when I asked the question. Uh, all of us, I think, feel that tension in our own hearts. I certainly do. Uh, I've just got a head start on you this morning because I've been preaching this to myself all week and, and praying and repenting and i still got more repenting to do. Do, do. do you have Jesus? Does Jesus have you? There's a tension between those two things. Unfinished. Unfinished. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, great passage that tells us then about this process. The very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray God your whole spirit 
and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he that calleth you, who also will do it. Notice then, first of all, the person. The person. The very God of peace. Any promissory note, whether it's as simple a thing as a check, or whether it's the most complicated contract in, that you can imagine, any promissory note is only as good as the name that's written on it. This one is signed by the very God of peace. The very God of peace. See that one of the greatest truths of Scripture is celebrated in Psalm 100. I love this psalm, and it tells us in verse 3, Know ye that the Lord, He is God. It is He that hath made us, and not we ourselves. We are His people, and the sheep of His pasture. Know ye that the Lord is God. He made us. And we are His. Specifically, we're the sheep of His pasture. Any domesticated animal exists as a testimony to its owner. If you see a dog that's emaciated and starving, that dog's chained up and maybe in a pen. You don't look at that dog and say, Man, why don't you eat? Why don't you do something for yourself? Why'd you let yourself get in such a shape? You don't say that because you know something. If you see a dog uh, uh, chained up, pinned up, and it's starving to death, it's not the dog's fault. It's its owner's fault. You see a horse out in the pasture starving, sitting there, and the ground is gnawed down to nub. It's not the horse's fault. It's its owner's fault. You see cattle out there in the field, and, and, and they're starving. And it's not the cow's fault. It's the owner's fault. We're the sheep of His pasture. We exist as a testament then to our Heavenly Father. But unlike sheep, we are a resourceful bunch. And God Himself would say of His own people, the ox knows its owner and the ass its master's crib, but my people don't. My people don't. And so while we look at these domesticated animals, and God Himself calls us sheep, we're the sheep of His pasture. That means that uh, He wants us to be thriving people. He wants us uh, to be successful. He wants us to be a tribute, a testimony uh, to Him. That's how He intends for it to be. And if that's going to happen then we have to remember that God is the one who's created us. God is the one who owns us. We belong to Him. And the secret then of how to live life and be what we're intended to be is not found in the world. It's not found in sin. It comes from God and from God alone. He is the one. That's why I like what Moses said to Israel so long ago in Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 18, You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you power to get wealth. I work hard for a living. If it weren't for God's blessing, you wouldn't have a body or a mind to work with. Wouldn't have a job. Wouldn't have a business. Wouldn't have the abilities that you have. It is God who gives you power to get wealth. God is the source of our blessing. 
We need to remember that. The person, the very God of peace, He is the one who is working on us. He intends for us to be a testament then to His power, His glory, His blessing and provision on our life. So what is the process? May the very God of peace sanctify you wholly, and I pray God then your whole spirit and soul and body. Now when we read that, we notice something right off the bat. There's a good place in there for a comma that got missed. Because you see, in English, uh, uh, there's a simple rule, uh, one and per sentence. If you're ever tempted to put more than one and in a sentence, you restrain yourself, put a period, start another sentence. That's the rule. However, in Greek and in Hebrew, uh, which the writer of this passage, Paul, was actually a Hebrew, it was very common for them to use a figure of speech where they use many ands. And every time you find it in Scripture, you look at it and you say, well, in fact, some of your modern translations may have put in a comma and left out an and, but let me assure you the and is in the text. When you find it in there, the reason it's there is to draw particular attention to each and everything that is being mentioned in that list. God wants us to slow down and pay attention. May the God of peace sanctify you wholly, and I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. God begins, of course, with the spirit. Whatever it is that God does in the life of any person, must begin with the Spirit. Because unless there is spiritual life there, there is nothing else for God to do. We are dead inside, and He must give us life. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us, But God, who is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. They say, no, wait a minute, Brother Hamlin, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not dead. I'm alive this morning. Yes, you are physically, but if you're not saved, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you don't have a relationship with Him, then spiritually you're dead. That is, you're dead to the things of God. Your spirit is just dead more so than your mouth is when that uh, dentist shoots you full of Novocaine. And, and by the way, that's one of God's great inventions to us, and we all know that. Man, isn't it great? Just don't feel a thing. Except that awful shot. Before we're saved spiritually, we're deadened to the things of God. We're dead in trespasses and sins. We're very alive to sin, dead to God. But the good news is that God, who is rich in mercy even for His great love when we were, uh, with which He loved us, when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, yet He quickened us. He made us alive. And He did that in Jesus Christ. So that where once we were dead, now we're alive. How does that happen? Because we believe on Jesus Christ. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 26, we are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. So God starts with the Spirit. And by the gospel and the preaching of the gospel, just like what I'm doing this morning, the Spirit of God works in our heart and life. And He is working then to draw us to the reality, to the truth, 
the truth that Jesus Christ died for your sins according to the, uh, to the Scriptures, that He was buried but He didn't stay dead, that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He will give you life. He'll make you alive if you believe on Him. You put your trust in Him. You say, I believed in God all my life. It's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about trusting Him to forgive you of your sins. See, that's where it comes in. But we have to say to God, God, I've sinned. We'll never get to that place without the work of the Holy Spirit. I've sinned. And oh God, I need you to save me. You pray that prayer this morning in faith. I promise you God in heaven will answer that prayer. He'll save you right where you're sitting. God begins with the Spirit. He has to. Until we have spiritual life, there's nothing else. Then he moves to the soul. In this passage, the word soul equates to the mind, uh, the place where our sense of self exists in the mind, the soul. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Remember, I told you a few moments ago I'd get to this passage. Here it is. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Be not conformed to this world, but be you transformed by the renewing of your, what? Mind. Mind. Transformed. Changed. How? By the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, the word prove literally means approve, that you can put your stamp of approval. You understand uh, that God then is, is, is right in what He says, that what God says is right is right. What God says is wrong is wrong. And you see that. You agree with that. You give affirmation to that. You understand that this is, this is what's right and true. <clears throat> this is what I can believe in. This is what is trustworthy. The Word of God, the truth of God. This is the will of God. This is how I should live my life. That is a renewed mind. A renewed mind then that sees the truth of God. Though I may not live it all out, none of us do. <laughs> can we say amen to that? I may not live it all out, all the truth of God, but I know it's true. I may not always do it, but I know I should. I know it's what's true. I know that it's what's trustworthy. I know that it's what's dependable. I know this is how I should live. That is a renewed mind. The contrast to that is also given us in Scripture. It's called a reprobate mind. A reprobate mind. It's the exact opposite. Before we were saved, we had a reprobate mind. What is a reprobate mind? Verse 28 of chapter, Romans chapter 1, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. There it is. They don't even want to think about God. Don't want to believe in God. Don't believe God exists. Reject God. Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. And he goes on and gives a long, lengthy list. I didn't put it on the PowerPoint this morning. You can look it up and study it out on your own. I'll just read it. 
God gave them to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, sexual sins of all kinds, wickedness, just general wickedness, covetousness, a desire for other people's stuff, maliciousness, seething evil, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, never satisfied. Let me tell you something, sin has never, listen, sin has never and will never satisfied a single person ever. Sin creates a desire for more sin that cannot be satisfied. Unmerciful. That's the reprobate side of the world. But listen, when you're saved, God renews our mind. And the renewing of our mind gives us understanding that there's another way to live. I don't have to live that way. I don't have to present my body, my life, to live in that way. Because I know that God has another plan. That God has a way of living. And I know that His way is not only the right way, His way is the best way. I know it. Why? Because our minds are renewed. God starts with the Spirit. He has to. He moves from there to the soul of the mind in this passage. The mind, where the self, our sense of self resides. Where we decide what kind of man we're going to be. What kind of woman we're going to be. And it moves into the body. Spirit and soul and body. <laughs> oh, how the world is obsessed these days with changing the body. My. And to be honest, some of those changes are springing from that reprobate mind. Let's just tell the truth. I'm not going to preach that sermon today, but I am going to tell the truth. People are obsessed with changing the body. Short people want to be taller. No offense. Taller people, man, I wish I was a little shorter. Get tired of bumping my head on this. Go to the gym, you'll see skinny people in there just working, working, working. Why in the world do skinny people go to the gym? They want to bulk up. Right across from them is that fat guy. Fatter guy. <laughs> oh, overweight guy. What's he wanting to be? Skinny. One writer asked a very astute question, and he said, if you could change your body however you wanted, would anyone even know who you are? Oh. We would look a whole lot different, let's just say. But Paul isn't talking about our appearance for the most part in this passage when he talks about God changing our body. Although our appearance can indeed and often does change 
when our mind is changed, when our heart, when our spiritual life and spiritual life takes up residence, our mind ceases to be a reprobate mind, now it's a regenerated mind, a renewed mind in Jesus Christ. And you can see a lot of times the change that takes place in the lives of people, and you see it because they look different. Their appearance changes. I, I've seen it. It's amazing. The transformation sometimes, yes, even bleeds over to our appearance when God is changing us. But for the most part, he's not talking about our appearance. He's talking about our character. Sin, you see, is indeed inconvenient. Sin's hard on the body. It is. But it's the issues of character that we really struggle with. If you've got enough money, you can change your body. But no amount of money can change your character. If you could, all rich people would be really nice. It's not always that way. Changes no surgery can make for us. You struggle with impatience, got a critical tongue. You're jealous, envious toward those around you? Do you live with a constant spirit of discontent? Do you harbor lingering resentment because of unforgiveness? Do you struggle with lust that you can't conquer? Financial mismanagement, guilty conscience, overbearing stubbornness, judgmental spirit, quick-tempered, profound discouragement? Irritability, inability to appreciate life, ungrateful, disorganized. The list goes on and on of all the character traits that we want to change. We need to change. Got good news today. God ain't through with you yet. He's not through with me yet. We're unfinished. He's still working. And we end up then in 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 24 with that great, great assurance. Faithful is he that calleth you who also will do it. Faithful is he that calleth you who also will do it. You see, God is working uh, to change us wholly, spirits and soul and body, uh, with the goal of preserving us blameless under the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our spirits have been made righteous. Our sins are washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from all sin. And nothing, not nothing, <laughs> is going to change that. Bad English to make a point. Nothing. I mean Nothing is going to change the fact that our sins are under the blood of Jesus Christ. Isn't that good news? That God is working so that our whole, not just the spirit, but our mind, the soul, and body would be preserved blameless under the coming of the Lord Jesus. And the only one who can do that is God Himself. That's why it's in the passage.
faithful is he that calleth you who also will do it. One day we're going to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ to give an account of the deeds done in the body, whether they were good or bad. Our service is going to be judged. Our sins are under the blood. But our service, or lack of it, is what we're going to give an account for. What we've done with what God gave us, how we did, with the blessings, the benefits, the talents, the opportunity that He gave us. Uh, We're all going to give an account. That glorious day is going to come. That glorious day when the dead in Christ will get their new sinless bodies. And we which are alive and remain under the coming of the Lord are going to be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. And what we've worked on our whole life is going to be changed quicker than that as we are going to be transformed into the image of Christ in our glorified resurrection body forever and ever and ever. Amen. It's what Paul was writing about in Romans chapter 8 and verse 23. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with with perseverance. What are we waiting for? The redemption of the body. Faithful is he that calls you, who also will do it. Oh, we're going to bear the image of Christ for all eternity. He's still working on us. Number two, the outcome is not in question. What's in question is what we're doing now, that tension. Do we have Jesus? Does Jesus have you? Do you have Jesus? Does Jesus have you? Ruth Graham, who's the wife of the late evangelist, Billy Graham, has written on her tombstone a profound epitaph, end of construction. Thank you for your patience, Ruth Graham. End of construction. Thank you for your patience. When I read that, I had to wonder, when I get to heaven, if I remember, I may ask her. Or maybe I could read her book because it's in her book. Who she was thinking about, about being patient. Was she thankful for God being patient with her? Or was she thankful for everybody else being patient with her? Maybe a little both. End of construction. Thank you for being patient. I think all of us can say this morning that we're very grateful that God is patient with us. And long-suffering that He has assigned this task, He's accepted that task, and He is going to be faithful to complete that task. We're thankful for it. We're glad then that God is patient with us. Perhaps then we can be a little more patient with one another. He's still working on them too. As we look ahead then to a fresh year, Let's spend some time maybe thinking about the areas of our life and character that we need to ask our faithful God to work on, to 
to help us with. After all, if we're struggling in some areas, God already knows it. It's not like it's a big surprise to Him. He knows about the sins that does so easily beset us, and He knows, and He alone knows, how to lay them aside so that we can run with patience, perseverance, the race that is set before us. You've been carrying that heavy weight around long enough, God's people, it's time to lay it down, and God is the only one who can help you do it. But He will. He will. Do you have Jesus? There'll never be a better day than today to settle that issue. Have you received Jesus Christ as your Savior? Does Jesus have you? Let's stand together, please.